0: Welcome to another episode of the Mindful Initiative podcast. It's not always that we get uh, eminent folks to speak with during our podcast, but today is one such day where we are very privileged to have Dr. R. Palasubramaniam who's with us to talk about his journey having embarked on his journey in the development sector by living and working for several years among remote forest-based tribal communities in the southern Indian district of Mysuru. Dr. Bala Subramaniam is a widely respected development activist, leadership trainer, thinker, and writer. After his MBBS, he earned his MPhil in hospital administration and health systems management from Bitspilani. He then went on to get his master's degree in public administration from Harvard Kennedy School. His living habits were greatly influenced by the teachings of Swami Vivekananda, And at the age of 19, he founded the Swami Vivekananda Youth Movement based on the principles of Ahimsa, Satya, Seva and Tyaga. This NGO has grown to be one of the finest NGOs in India. He has spent the last 36 years of his life in the service of rural and tribal forests of India. He is also the founder and chairman of Grassroots Research and Advocacy Movement, a public policy and think tank in India. He is a Tata scholar, a Mason Fellow of Harvard Kennedy School and a Fellow of Hauser Center of Civil Society at Harvard University. He's a Frank H. T. Rhodes Professor at Cornell University. He is an adjunct faculty at University of Iowa and a visiting faculty at IIT Delhi. He's also the author of seven books in Kannada and English.
1: And I think COVID is a brilliant opportunity. Now, as a physician, it may sound very paradoxical that I'm calling it a brilliant opportunity. Opportunity for science to discover vaccines. Opportunity for public health experts to learn how to better manage stuff. All that is fine. But I think deep down at the personal level, it's an opportunity for us to ask as the very purpose of our existence. So I think what we need is opening our minds the way we learn. And deconstructing learning, not from the hierarchical teacher-student learning mindset that we are all used to, but looking at environment, nature, animals, dogs, things around you, and learning from them. And the moment you start opening yourself like that, then you understand the power of the traditional knowledge. system.
0: Welcome, Dr. Balas Rubarniam.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me over this podcast, Nitesh.
0: So first thing I wanted to ask, can I call you Dr. Balu?
1: please do call me dr balu because bal subramanian looks so distant and somebody else
0: <laughs> that was my first question you know in these interviews we we get to know a little bit about uh, the people that we are interviewing especially about their childhood and most times our childhood shape or at least you know begin to shape who we are as individuals now there is a lot of information that i found out about you after the age of 19 when you founded the ngo But if you could tell us a little bit about your upbringing and if religion was part of your upbringing or or any spirituality was part of your upbringing.
1: Well, I come from a very typical middle class family. Like most middle class families in the city of Bengaluru, aspirations are just uh, limited to studies and the end outcome of studying, well, would be... Getting a degree in medicine or a degree in engineering. You no, know, we really had no much options. And once you got that, the next step was to you write your GRE or uh, those days they were called uh, ECFMGs for medicine. Now they're called and they are call USMLEs, and or the PLAB exam for UK. And that's it. So India was just a launchpad, and then you found your way out. My life was no different. So shaped exactly in these middle class values. But what the values of middle class also shape you is, you know, you take enormous pride in family, in kinship, uh, you grow up with friends who are very grounded, you you are, you know, like Swami Vivekananda always says, he says, my faith is in the middle class, because you can relate to the people who you think are poor, at the same time, you could also travel the world of the rich if you want. So it, it gives you a unique advantage, and I think my values were exactly similar. And coming from parents who were also very typically middle class but who came up the very hard way, you understand the values like, you know, respect for people, respect for heritage, culture, and you grow up, without even knowing it, you grow up in a religious environment. So every festival is a celebration. So at a particular age of childhood, you know, you think festivals are opportunities to buy new clothes and eat sweets and burst crackers. But subconsciously, I think the DNA of uh, God, God along packaged with rituals, all gets thrown into you. It, it's a very cu- a peculiar combination of uh, several, several things that gets packaged. And coming from the state of caste that I came from, and you carry your burden of caste also, and so you also are embedded with all those caste values of um, Japa, Dhyana, Gayatri Mantra, and all that. At that point of time, you know, you resent it. Strangely, to me personally, in my life, Gayatri Mantra is one of the most powerful tools that I still cherish using. But at that age, when you're 10 or 11, you think it's a nuisance that your father is forcing you to do all that. So I think I just grew up in that environment. So very typical middle-class aspirations, absolutely no idea or intent of doing what I did in life. So it was just that, saw my career, my life as an opportunity to leave this country and join my siblings who are already abroad. So that's all it was. And you always imagine that the light at the end of the tunnel is leaving this country.
0: Thank you so much. I think you are so right. And even till today, the middle class values are such. We look at going outside. There's a lot of work that has been done in the last 30, 40 years where, uh, where we want people to just be here. The aspirations may not be as many as they were few years ago because a lot more opportunities have come by and especially because of the work that is being done by people like you who have gone grassroots and we see certain things that are happening. The goal that our country has to offer which has been hidden because of certain other elements. You talk about Swami Vivekananda a lot uh, and and he's been inspiration for you from a very young age and one of the principles uh, which he talks about is the Ichha, Jnana and Kriya the desire, right, uh, as what to do. But the young generation, that desire is somehow transforming to be more materialistic, to be more money-oriented and moving away from what I saw in my parents' generation. It was about building the country, bringing up families and being connected. And now we are evolving as a society. So if uh, Swami Vivekananda were to be here, I mean, people like you are his incarnations in many ways. What would his thought process be? Would he still be saying the same things or would he be coming up with new messages for us?
1: You know, I, I, I actually think about this question a lot in my life. Because Every time I'm saying this in the context of more than a decade ago, I wrote a book called Swami Vivekananda as I see him. And I was reading my own book and I thought, oh my God, did I see him this way? And uh, then I asked myself, is Swamiji and this message changed? Because I believe the message of Vedanta that he gives is eternal. Or is my ability to interpret this message changing? So then I realized that my antennas are being fine-tuned every day. The more, more you get embedded in the discovery of the self, the more you enjoy go diving inside, the more you try to withdraw your best, not that you Successful from the outside distractions, you start seeing him differently. And I remember one sentence he says: "He says life is a journey about traveling from one level of truth to the next level." And my understanding of Vivekananda is exactly that. Because I am at a particular level, I see him in a particular way. And then as I evolve, I have the ability to understand and interpret him better. And I evolve to the next level of truth. So his message is not going to change. I think our abilities to interpret his message changes. That's the way I look at it. And to me, if I were to interpret, instead of saying what would he say today, I would say, how would I interpret him today? And I am uh, reminded of a book by somebody whom I had the chance of just having a conversation with when I was in Cambridge in the US. She's written a book called, it was based on a PhD thesis. She's written a book called The Gift Unopened. And she discovers in her research, something happened in the United States in the late 1800s. 1890 and beyond, which actually altered the trajectory and the growth potential of the United States. And as she went deeper, she realized it was the cyclone that hit the United States called Swami Vivekananda. And then she says, the Americans are the most fortunate that Swamiji came there and spent such time to speak, right? And then uh, she says, Americans have failed to open this gift. It's a gift given by God and we have not yet opened it. And one sentence she writes in that book, she says, if Columbus can be credited to the discovery of the land of America, it was Swami Vivekananda which gave us our soul. And uh, so it's, a, it's a fascinating little book. And I keep telling myself, even in India, we have not completely opened the gift called Vivekananda. So we all he's packaged so many layers that every time I open one layer, I think, "Ha, oh, I've discovered this man. And then you realize there's another package to be opened. And as you keep unopening this package, you discover him at different levels and different layers of truth. So to me, if you we were here today, and this is what I articulate, whether it's my talks, my lectures, my books, they're all essentially Vivekananda or Vedanta packaged in different ways. Or I try to make them relevant and contextually relevant as well as culturally appropriate for the modern generation. So to me, the message would be for the young people. Uh, understanding the reality of where they are, I would say, can you explore and discover private gains while you're engaged in public good? Swami Vivekananda's life is all about life for others. In a letter to the Mysore Maharaja, he says, the vanities of life are transient, but he alone lives who lives for others. The rest are more dead than alive. Now That's an eternal message. That is not going to alter. But the vanities of life are getting redefined. now. What were the vanities of life a decade ago, two decades ago is different from what it is today. So I believe if it's repackaged and told people, you know what? Great, have private gains. The means is as important as the end is what Vivekananda says. So pay attention to the means, have your private gains, but remember, it has to result in public good. So I call upon young friends when I talk to them and say, there's nothing wrong in having private gains the ethical, moral way, but you've got to understand the impact has to be public good. So as they start framing their life this way, they start their journey of understanding what life is for others. I'll give an example. Let's take the example of Bill Gates himself, right? His journey of private gains is Microsoft and all that he did and the wonderful things he has done in his life. But now he understands it's public good. Similarly, let's take our own extraordinary person, Azim Premji, right? His own journey has been private gains. But now at a particular point in life, he realizes that's just this means or the stepping stone. And now he's living it for the public good. So we are such wonderful role models around the world, many in our own country. And if you can just understand that if you keep telling them public good at 18, 19, 20, and in a world which celebrates consumerism and exhibitionism, that young man is going to be at most confused, at best maybe inspired. So I would say find the middle ground and say, hey, it's okay. Find your private gains. But remember, public good has to be a measurable outcome of your private gains. And I think it works.
0: beautiful is that and if all of us start thinking in that direction, I think it'll be a totally different generation, totally different country, totally different world. And when you talk about role models, one of the role models that came to my mind was a lady in in your book who started a tent business uh, who was earning 1,000 rupees because at a young age, uh, she had to go through so many difficulties and she has overcome all that to not just help herself, but help the other women in the community. So she is a role model in her own respite, in her own way. And I love how you, how she mentions that they employ men now, which is so beautiful. It's the reverse thing. But that made me think about our education system. That made me think about uh, the way the society is functioning today. What I mean by that is in the education system, we are talking about kids getting more grades, coming or topping the classes or uh, the best in the education system are rewarded, the lowest are being helped in many ways. And most people like me who are in the middle, they are like, you know, you figure out your own way. It's your own way of doing. Now you have set up schools. Uh, You are part of the uh, University of Mysore with teaching messages and setting up, I think, the first master's program as well. How is that different? So that's my first question. My second question is the youth that we are teaching in schools and colleges, do we need to relook? I mean, that's a big question. Do we need to relook at our education system the way we are teaching the value system of who we are as Indians, as humans?
1: I think uh, the answer is embedded in the way you frame the question itself. Now, the first question do we relook at the education system? What do we do? You know, there was a time where I would say, maybe 30, 40 years ago when globally, attainment in a particular way was simply boiled down to the qualifications that you could display. And the better the place that you display the qualification from, you're automatically granted the status. And it's not too far off. When I graduated from Harvard, it's just another place, as simple as that. And it, yes, obviously, it's a, it's a fascinating place, a lot of intellectual stimulation, the ecosystem there promotes you to acquire more and more knowledge. Uh, My own personal experience is that I always felt that in in the work that I did, that I felt inadequate throughout. And this hunger, this inadequacy of mine, because of the ecosystem pressure, because of everybody around me, I thought the adequacy can be fulfilled by formal degrees. So when I realized that my clinical work was not answering problems of malnutrition or scabies or vitamin A deficiency, I thought maybe a public health degree will teach me how to do it. So I went into the National Institute of Health and Family Welfare, acquired a program there and then I thought, oh, I figured it out now. And I come back. Luckily, my own life was still, provided me the space to experiment. I never recognized that I had learned how to experiment. I never recognized that I had on my own self because of my gurus and my Diksha guru who helped me reflect and and my earlier book, Voices from Bhagavad Sus, I have actually dedicated to him from Yachalanji. and I never realized what he had embedded me with the capacity to learn, the capacity to reflect, the capacity to process things on my own. And suddenly Vivekananda's message of unleashing the inner potential or finding or discovering the embedded learning within a person started un- flowering out without my own understanding. But I was still a victim of a system I had come from. And I thought, okay, public health doesn't answer my questions. Maybe the problem is health systems. And that took me to Bitspilani and I thought, okay, that'll teach me how to do it. And well, I didn't find an answer to the real challenges of tribals living in the forest. They've been suffering because of laws which they never understood. I thought, oh my God, I know how to find the solution for this. The mecca of human development is the Harvard Kennedy School. Luckily, I, they invited me. I went there, did the program, did a fellowship and all that. And I came back. And then finally, after coming back, I realized I still didn't have the answers. Thankfully, they didn't give me the answers because they wouldn't have been my answers at all. But what they gave me was a better way of framing questions and the confidence that I could discover answers from within myself, which is anyway there in me. But society being what it is, Harvard might have wanted me there because of my 30 years of work in the grassroots. But today people want me because I'm a Harvard product. That's a very strange thing. So there is a cosmetic value that we all give to these institutions. So I think I wouldn't discard it for now because we a society in transition, we still need those cosmetic appendages if I may call, but then those cosmetic appendages must realize and learn that education is not just for employment. The private gains part can come from employment, but they need to learn that if we can embed in our younger generations, the children of the country and then the youth of the country, the ability to figure out for themselves, their own inner selves, their potential, the true practice of brahmacharya in a, a, not in a, just a continence kind of a way, in, in an academic kind of a way, devoted to the growth of concentration and discipline and dispassion and determination, all these essential qualities that we celebrate in our country for generations. I think we, unfortunately, lack a generation of teachers who can do that. Because we have had a generation of teachers who always believe that employment is the future. Employment for what is a question that if younger people ask. And they are asking. I can even talk about my own son. Uh, he went to the Institute of Science and then he said, this has not given me what I wanted. And he said, I'm going to discover it on my own. And today there are opportunities. And if, you, if you can only, I only appreciate, and I say, his real learning is the courage in saying, I'll discover it myself. If we can embed a future generation with that courage, with the wisdom, with the conviction that, you know, there's a civilizational wisdom in this country, which if we can unpack and rediscover in a way in which it appeals to me, things can get mu- much better. So we have been trying small experiments. And so even if you look at my own trajectory of life and the schools and colleges we run, it was no different from the other systems. Because I was also, my vision was limited to the product of the system I came from. But once I started asking these questions, now we are actually re-looking at it. And we are now conceiving a center called Center for Human Excellence. Because that is the real education. And we are now saying we'll keep it embedded in what others can understand it as. Call it a school, call it a college, call it all those words, society can relate to that. And I don't want to keep waging my battle trying to change society. That's not my intent. My intent is to create a new generation of young people who believe in themselves, have the confidence to renegotiate their own lives on their terms, and truly make this world a better place. So we are now putting it all together. And hopefully five years from today, we just started six months ago. COVID gave us a great opportunity because the resilience that COVID demanded in multiple levels is what I realized we need to embed. People with. And in conclusion, if I were to say what is it that I would like to engage or devote my rest of my life, is the message that we carry, the development paradigm that we have now framed at the Swami Vivekananda Youth Movement. And, and draws inspiration from several thinkers. It could be uh, Vivekananda, Ramana Maharishi, J. Krishnamurti, Ara You know, they're all such extraordinary greatness. The simplicity was their greatness. And if you can just pick their messages, synthesize it together. So we realize that what you need, what does human beings need is a capacity to build a human and social capital. And I define human capital in a simplistic way, not the way economists or World Bank would define it. But I define it as an expansion of capabilities in the domain of the physical. So learning yoga is as critical, eating the right food is as critical. Ahara tattva makes meaning suddenly, having good air to breathe, good water to drink. The cognitive, Right extraordinary. We need those. Information matters. In today's world of STEM and information, you cannot discard it. The third is emotional. Now, bhava, we don't even know how to deal with bhava, the interpersonal intelligence or the intrapersonal intelligence that we all need to have. And the last is spiritual. You cannot remove one out to the other. And whatever, I don't want to waste my time arguing, is it saffronization? It is not saffronization. I think it's a meaningless waste of time, expanding the physical, cognitive, emotional, and spiritual capabilities of a person. And making you have to build a cohort of people to have influence and change at a larger level. That's why the social capital has to grow. Now, your podcast is a great way of social capital to expand. So, if I'm going to talk on your podcast, and maybe there are 100 people listening to this later, in some way we get connected. And the connection is the real experience of connection doesn't have to be, we don't have to physically be there. In a very deep, advaitic way, if we can learn to listen in a co generative way, we we'll find meaning in each other's words and then express it in different ways. And this is what we hope to embed. And if a child wants to go into the regular way of life, they're going to be powerful economic consequences of the tools that we're going to give with this. He can do that. So we are not, that's a private gain I'm talking about. But if he decides to say that, okay, well, this training is going to make me use this and redeploy for public good, the world is going to be better. So it may sound utopian and dreamy, but my conviction says this is the way to go.
0: I think it may sound utopian because it may seem grandiose in ways, but I think you lived an exemplary life or you've been living an exemplary life because you have taken something which was, uh, which started from nothing and then you've built it, right? So it is a possibility of doing that. But one of the things that you mentioned really piqued my interest is about the intellectual thinkers our, our nation has has given. And you simply stated Ramana, Urbindo, Vivekananda, But when you start to look at their body of work and then synthesize it into one aspect, and I'll bring Gandhiji in it as well, because he's also one of the greatest intellectual thinkers, not just of our generation of, you know, of time immemorial, that he said that we need to develop our villages, we need to develop the grassroots, which is what you've been working with, which is extremely, extremely important. Now, the way things have gone is that people move from grassroots or villages to cities. So there is this migration that happens. And then when there is off season, there is a reverse migration. They go outside. Now, people who go back, they take back things that they have learned in the cities and they try to change things in the villages. But in my own personal experience, my mother is from Haryana, from a place called Kunjpura, which was a very small village. And my uncles live there. My mamas still live there. But they have so much wisdom to provide. The tribals that you have been working with, the stories that you have mentioned, that they have their own ways of doing things. And there is nothing wrong because they've been doing that for generations and they're perfectly okay. Now, by bringing in the education system and money, we're losing a lot of it. We're losing what, uh, what may help the larger society. How do you recommend that we stop that flow. Somehow I feel that we are losing touch with so many such things, which can be so valuable for being a human, explore being a human, I think.
1: I think it's a great way of putting Exploring being a human is possibly the journey all of us are. And we can call it by different names, call it spirituality, call it uh, mindful reflection. I think um, it, it's a phase. I always look at it as a phase and it's a cycle. Right? And then in my own little limited life, I'm already seeing change. I think most of us go by what society celebrates. You now society celebrates, whom does society call an achiever? You set up a um, factory and you make your millions, you give, make your billions, and then throw a little charity and then you think, and we celebrate that little charity they do, right? So we have pegged the wrong ideals as societal success, and that's fair. You know, I think every generation moves at a different value culture, value levels, right? If you look at, you know, simplistically, if you look at the Mahabharata times, right? What we valued was valor and courage. And we celebrated Ekalaviyas and Arjunas and all these people, right? And that is natural. That generation of people, if you're really courageous and uh, full of valor and bravery and you say, oh my God, is great. Or Abhimanyu. And those were the role models of society at that time. And just historically drawing... Uh, a extrapolating. Or in Ramayana, we celebrated truth and the way Rama lived and being honest to oneself and that, that life. of. And then we celebrated also during that time, strangely, wisdom. Because Vishwamitra could throw away his kingdom and become a Rishi in the pursuit of knowledge. So in some sense, knowledge was also celebrated and the way you lived and ethicality of life, etc. You keep coming down generations, maybe during our freedom struggle, patriotism and nationalism and overthrowing the British and these sentiments were celebrated by. That's why we still remember Bhagat Singh and As- Tanshekhar Asad and Rajguru and all these people, right? So we, we believe they're great role models. And so we keep repeating that throwing a bomb at the British. So we ignore the violence he might have caused in that brief second, but then we celebrate his patriotism and that's fair. But post-independence, a nation suddenly believed imitating the West, absorbing consumerist values, economic growth in a very stifled way, whatever. As a development expert, I have a different view on the way we chose those options. But we celebrated fighting poverty, acquiring prosperity as values. That's why today you would call Narayan Murthy or Kiran Mazumdar or Azim Premji as heroes. At the same time, we also celebrate how they make money is important. That's why you don't celebrate Veerappan, who also made his millions, but he didn't make it the right way. We don't celebrate him. We actually, it's a negative way of celebrating his wealth, right? So society still had some values. But I think now, suddenly, we're discovering that that alone is not sufficient. There's something that's still unfulfilled. So we had a time in the, I would say, in between the 1860s to 1920s. And that's why if you look at all the great names I said, whether it's, and if you add Tagur to it, and all the wonderful people that led this country, they were all in one historical time set. It's not that the country has never produced leaders after that. It's just that society has not celebrated them because the value system in the ecosystem is not for celebrating that kind of values. So, when the time when Tagore's and Vivekananda's and Bhagat Singh's and Gandhi's all flourished, what was necessary was their nationalistic expression. And so, we can remember that. Today, I think, what we need now is a rediscovery of that nationalistic expression, not from a very narrow parochial view, It is not about loving India and therefore the expression of loving India is hating Pakistan or any other country around us. But acquiring that extraordinary ideal of seeing God in man and understanding that India's real status of Vishwa Guru that Swami Vivekanda spoke about was giving this message of that inner potential, that inner divinity embedded in every one of us, that message of Advaitic experience that we can share with the whole world. And I think it will catch up. Because increasingly, people are now recognizing that they are not satisfied with the status quo. And I think COVID is a brilliant opportunity. Now, as a physician, it may sound very paradoxical that I'm calling it a brilliant opportunity. Opportunity for science to discover vaccines, opportunity for public health experts to learn how to better manage stuff. All that is fine. But I think deep down at the personal level, it's an opportunity for us to ask the very purpose of our existence and, this, and I brought in Ramana there because I think the question of who am I? Why do I exist? What am I doing here? How do I respond to this COVID crisis? What gives meaning to my life? What is my purpose of existence? This has been a fascinating time. And those of us who started going deeper into those questions, I think, are the ones who are going to find answers, not just for themselves, but for everybody. It is not celebrating this so-called uh, godmen and uh, ashrams and building your empires, but... We've discovered that we have have an empire within ourselves. And opening the keys to the kingdom within us is what this powerful opportunity gives us. So to me, I think a nation and nation's heroes are those people who have been doing this quietly. And what I have tried to do in my books, whether it's either citizen in the context of policy and human development, in, in Voices on the grassroots, again, the same construct, or in the expression of leadership, in the Leadership Lessons for Daily Living that I write about, is to do two things, is to demonstrate the extraordinary wisdom embedded in what we dismiss of as ordinary people. And this is more, more, more capturable in a rural setting. I'm not saying it doesn't exist in urban settings. So the, the ability to rediscover traditional wisdom and civilizational knowledge and learn lessons from my heritage is much more possible in a rural ecosystem. And that's why all my examples are mostly rural. But it doesn't mean they're not urban. I'm not even discarding that. It. It's just that I haven't had the opportunity to live long enough in urban areas to discover that. So I think what we need is opening our minds, the way we learn and deconstructing learning, not from the hierarchical teacher-student learning mindset that we are all used to, but looking at environment, nature, animals, dogs, things around you and learning from them. And the moment you start opening yourself like that, then you understand the power of the traditional knowledge industry. To me, that is the true purpose of education. Opening that is what our schools and colleges should do. To some extent, in some strange way, the national education policy has tried to package a few of this together, but there's always going to be proof the pudding is going to be in the heating. So when you reconstruct and translate it into a transactable curriculum, in a situation, in a system where the teachers are just not competent to be doing that, I'm not too sure what the results will be, but it's a good beginning.
0: wonderfully said and I love the purpose of education like the way you described it is to see what we are not seeing and I think seeing the others as equal is what the underlying message was that I'm not better than the other we're getting towards the end of our time I do want to touch on the crucibles that you talk about the transformational points that you mention in your book because that is one thing that really inspired me reading more and more and especially I think it was the first story about the young 14-year-old mother delivering the child. I would like you to reiterate the story for us, for our listeners, because they may not uh, have read your book. Uh, uh, So that's one thing that I would like you to narrate to us. And and my question is a little bit more than that. Uh, The instances keep happening in people's life. You mentioned COVID happening, Corona happening right now. But for many, nothing has changed nothing like, you know, they're still living the same life, same. And they need not change. It's not necessary for them to change. But if you have some sort of an awareness, right, you might be willing to make a few changes or a few things that will go by. Now, the question that I have is, what if I don't have that awareness? How do I walk on that path of, you know, this awareness is coming in or uh, this change needs to be made in my life?
1: I'll begin with the story, or maybe the easier part, the second part, I'll I'll answer the second half of your question first. I think the simplest way uh, of seeking out awareness is coming to terms with your not being aware itself. At least that's what has been my life struggle. Every morning when I get up and I discover that there have been situations during the day when I have not been aware of what I should have been, it sort of reaffirms to me the need to be aware. Awareness is just, it's so difficult to describe. It's an extraordinary moment of here and now. Now, as I'm talking to you or as I'm listening to you, if I don't become one with you, and if I discover that I'm not one with you, that itself shows me that the struggle for awareness has begun. So to me, it's a strange way. I always tell my students when I teach them leadership, leadership is not about acquiring competence. But I would say leadership is about coming to terms with your incompetence. And when you learn to operate from zones of your incompetence, that sets you on the journey to acquire the competence to do good for somebody. And I think mindfulness and awareness to me is exactly that. You cannot really take people through a formal mindfulness training. It will just be a workshop or a program. I do a lot of such workshops. I know all of them come because, mm. and they pay quite a bit of money to for our programs and that helps my tribal hospital or tribal school. But beyond that, so many of them start on the journey of mindfulness. Some of them don't. And why is that? And that's where I believe, uh, and this might sound a very implausible or uh, irrational explanation, and this is where I believe karma matters. I believe we are in one lifelong journey, and the lifelong journey is not, it's only broken by death of a body at a particular point of time and the rebirth of another body. But they are just events in this journey. And so what, where you left off before is where you begin again. And that is the enormous preparation that you had over time is not visible to us in a limited way of our existence. We think, okay, I'm now 50, 55 years old and that's all I can remember. But maybe we don't have the ability to go deep enough to remember all that. But at least I think that is exactly why uh, some of us can begin somewhere and some of us cannot begin somewhere. And suddenly a crucible experience makes meaning for somebody today. The same experience or another person at the same time doesn't make meaning to him. Because His antennas have not been prepared by this journey long enough for him to make meaning of. So, whether my own experiences maybe if I was not ready, I would have just seen another young 14 year old pregnant and felt bad about it and gone on with life. But as you remember, the title of the book uh, in, in the book, the title of the chapter I say is The Voice That Keeps Me Going, and I say that because at that point of time the antenna was so receptive that it gave a powerful expression, but now. There will be different crucible moments, but I don't want to forget that crucible moment. So I go back to it and reflect on it and keep me going all the time. Because it just tells me how simple in, uh, life can be or how sometimes unidimensional and linear we are in our thinking. And we just sort of embed all the problems in our mind that we don't recognize others having bigger issues to worry about. And then that girl, child keeps me going. Just to repeat the story now, what did it mean? You know, you should also look at the story beginning of with an egoistic aspiration. I'm here to serve. I'm going to go to the villages. I'm going to be the next Albert Schweitzer. The Nobel Prize is just around the corner and people are waiting to give it to me. At 22, you actually are inspired by Vivekananda, but you're not understood Vivekananda because Vivekananda says this so powerful. He says, don't stand on a pedestal and say, here, my poor man, take my five cents. This consider it a privilege that you've been chosen, that good work is happening through you. I'd intellectualized this statement, but I never experienced it. So I was still in that phase where I thought, oh, I am the doctor. I'm a university ranker. i have given up a postgraduation degree, gone into the forest, I decided not to follow my siblings to the U.S. or Canada. And here I am doing good. And this little girl is pregnant and she better come to me, right? That's a kind of attitude. So when I heard this young girl, I, I didn't even know she was a 14-year-old. When I heard that the chieftain's daughter was pregnant, I thought, wow, this is an opportunity. I never, and I can be unashamedly open about this. I never thought there's an opportunity to serve God in there. I only thought of an opportunity that if I were to deliver the baby, the Ejimana, who was the chieftain of the place, would now celebrate me as a hero, and because of which I'll have an entry point into the community, and everybody will celebrate me. So I saw it as an opportunity for reaff- reaffirmation of my existence as a doctor in the role that I, was. I never saw it as a role. I thought that's myself. So I think to me, leadership, again, I I learned this from that lesson. The lesson I learned from there is ability to distinguish role from self. To me, that is leadership. In that moment, I had become the role. And I thought, oh, they have to recognize me. So that's how I got inspired to go there. And I went there and I found, when I looked at her, I realized she's a 14-year-old child who's pregnant. And those days, tribals never had structured marriage. They just lived together. And if they got pregnant, so be it. And to me, even then, I felt, Wow. High risk pregnancy, great opportunity to revalidate what I am, I, and I loved obstetrics. So I thought now I can show off my skills. Great time to get accepted. But I checked on her; she was a primary gravida, first delivery, and looked like and textbooks tell us it takes twenty four hours, and which was early labor. So I thought she's going to deliver me tomorrow morning, and it was quite remote, and I didn't want to be a dinner for some tiger. So I just came back. Next, early morning, 6-6, I still remember very vividly in my mind. I was walking with a little leather bag I had those days. And the little typical kind of a doctor that uh, Wodo's novels or those things describe And then you go there. On the way, Puttama, elderly tribal woman stopped me. She was taking water from a bore well. She was the aunt of this child. She asked me, where are you going so early? And I said, I'm going to deliver madhi. She laughed and said, you don't have to go. She already had the baby last night. No, I was so disappointed. Disappointed that the child was born, not because of my obstetric skills, but because of nature. And I felt let down. I said, why couldn't the baby have waited like the textbook told me? Why was it in a hurry? But I thought, I have to again prove myself in some way. So let me go put some gentian violet uh, on the umbilical stump. Those days we actually had gentian violet. Nowadays people don't even know what it is. On the umbilical stump and some gentamicin eye drops to the eyes. And, because the birth canal is not a clean place for the child to come out from. And so. Put some eye drops. So I went there. I'm standing at the hut. And uh, I realized Sanyamata, the father of the baby uh, girl, was not at home. He had gone to the forest to get firewood to boil water for the baby. And I heard the girl inside. I knew something was happening. I knew the baby was born. I could hear the crying and the whimpering. And I kept telling her, please, and in a tribal society, and I was very young those days, I was just been there for six months and I was hardly known. And I was not, I could be beaten up and thrown out in no time if I misbehaved or if I didn't follow the tribal rules. So I'm standing at the doorstep of this hut. It's an 8 by 10 hut. And I'm telling her, please bring the baby out to me. I need to at least do this and go back. Five minutes, ten minutes. Just try talking to a wall. No noise, but you know people inside, but no response. Finally, in anger, sheer egoistic anger that I am a man, I'm a doctor, come here to serve and this woman doesn't even respond to me. That kind of an anger. I said, if you're not going to come out with the baby, I'm going to get into your hut and see the baby anyway. And a scream. Even today, it's a very painful story to narrate, but with all my strength of inner poise, I'm trying to communicate this. She burst out crying, said, please don't come inside. I have nothing to cover myself with. Now, this young 14-year-old had one sari to wear. And while delivering her own baby, had actually, while delivering the placenta after the baby, she had soiled the sari. And she had washed it in the middle of the night, put it on top of her hut. was waiting for the sun to dry that to cover herself again. And to me, it was 1987, I can still remember 1987, December, 40 years after so-called political freedom. What kind of freedom we gave our people in our villages? And its story may not be very different in many of the rural parts of India. Even today, we talk of a $5 trillion economy. What meaning does it even have to people like Mahdi, who could not even get a second salary to bear? And that tells me that till till India has got children like these Mahdi's, my life's work is not done yet. And so that keeps me, that voice keeps me going. And, and to silver lining to the story is Madi, that child was born that day, grew up to be a fine young woman, studied in our school. And when she got pregnant, my wife, an obstetrician, delivered her in a hospital. And we realized that child was born to her in the hospital at an imperforate anus and could have died if a pediatric surgeon had not operated. So we could rush the baby to a friend in Bangalore. And he immediately was kind enough to do pro bono work for us and operate on the child. And that baby is also now an young person who also studied in our school. So when you see this and look back, there's a tendency you can say, I did it, but I believe these are opportunities which reiterate what Swami Ji told. Now, he says it so beautifully. And I, every time, and I also made this mistake. For a long time, I believed I did it. But then you wake up when Vivekananda writes this powerful statement, and I would like to end with that. He says, all the hospitals, it looked as if he wrote it for me. Every time I read it, I think he wrote it for me. All the hospitals you construct, all the schools you build, can crumble to dust in one earthquake or can get washed off in one cyclone. All our work is in the banks of the river Kabini. So one big cyclone or uh, floods from Kabini, everything will go away. So he says, the cow which gave birth to the calf has already been programmed to give milk to it. Who are you to believe that you are saving the calf? God has given birth to all of us, has already programmed to all of us. Just feel privileged that you have been given the opportunity to be the instrument of change, be the instrument to actually enable this. That's all you have to be. To me, mindfulness is the constant reminder that we are all privileged to be instruments of a powerful personality, powerful force, a powerful embedded message of Vedanta called Vivekananda.
0: Goosebumps, as you are narrating the story, you're, you're talking about the impermanence of life and shanbhangurtha. Uh, so towards the end of our uh, conversation, we ask a few questions uh, to get to know a little bit more about the person that we are interviewing and, and our listeners know a little bit more about them. So the questions can be answered in one word, one sentence, one paragraph, whatever you feel like. And you can politely decline as well. I mean, you don't have to do it politely. You can do it politely. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So the first question is uh, one memory from your childhood days uh, that brings a smile on your face.
1: You know, uh, it's a very small, silly story. My mother used to give sometimes five paise to buy what I wanted. And it was a very treasured five paise. Once in a while, she would give. And, I went, and those were difficult times for any middle class family. I was uh, walking back home. I used to love walking back. I studied in St. Joseph's in Bangalore. I used to, sometimes the bus would not come, so we'd walk back home. We never really bothered. Those days, walking was a, not a challenge today. And on the way, I remember I had the five paise. And I bought a cucumber, you know, the tea cucumber masala applied to it, you know, you're waiting to eat it and I was just about to eat it. I found a young mother with a child and the child looking at me, you know, the, the eyes could communicate, literally saying, you know what, I would like to eat it too. And spontaneously and I was, I realized I didn't give him the whole cucumber. Without even thinking twice, I broke it into two and gave him one piece and I ate one piece. And that child looked at the mother for permission. And the mother said, it's okay. And that connect, that moment of time where I was not being generous. At that moment, I just thought, I just did what anybody would have done. Maybe I would also got it if I'd looked like that at somebody. But later on in life, as I reflect, and I never narrated or written about the story. And somehow, I think there's a magic in what you ask. It just came out today. I remember the, my reflection would be, the joy was not in giving the cucumber, half the cucumber. The joy was what the child gave me in return. And that is priceless. And that's a moment I can never forget.
0: Thank you for that story. I think I know the answer to this question. But since we ask it to everyone, I'm going to ask it. One person that you would like to go meet in the history.
1: (laughs) Swami Vivekananda. I would like to sit at his feet and just absorb what he can give me.
0: So uh, I knew the answer to that question. So I'm going to go a little bit deeper. And probe a little bit more. So one favorite memory of Swami Vivekananda that you would like to be next to him when uh, when he's doing that. There are so many things that he has done. So one...
1: Uh, you know, he, uh, I uh, recently visited, it's a pilgrimage for me in the United States. When I teach at Cornell, I always wanted to go visit a place called Ridgely Manor, a place where Swami Vivekananda lived. Possibly the longest, 14 or 15 days continuously in any point of time was that he was recovering from his bad health, and there was a huge it is a huge campus. Those are hundreds of acres. Now it's just now thankfully that the Ramakrishna Mission of Hollywood has taken over the property and trying to keep it as it was. So you go to the room where he slept, but more importantly, there's a spot where he sat for meditation regularly, and that tree is gone, but the tree's baby is grown into big tree now, and just for me. I always, when I went there, I felt, you know, you can feel his presence. You can't explain it. But I wish I had seen his physical form then with him and sat there with him meditating. And just add on, when I visited Thousand Island Park, I felt, I wish I was one of those disciples who was with him when he gave those inspired talks, just there. And if God had a way of redesigning, reprogramming life and send back Vivekananda, I would have that at least to request for him.
0: Thank you. I, I was placed in, in those places that you mentioned. One book or one film or one song that you really love, it just comes to your mind without even thinking about
1: it. I'm not very musical, so I can't say song. But uh, it, and it, uh, for me, more importantly, uh, when I talk of a movie, a movie which I also use in my teaching, etc., The two movies, I cannot really say one. The one I use for others to learn from is a movie called Twelve Angry Men. It's an old 1957 Henry Fonda movie, a black and white movie, which I use in my teaching. The other one is the one I like to watch and I think it's a powerful way of capturing a message because two people I adore and based all my work on is Vivekananda and Gandhi. That's why it's Ahimsa, Satya, Seva and Tyaga. Seva and Tyaga, the ideals given by Vivekananda and Ahimsa and Satya. It's Attenborough's Gandhi. I think uh, the closest you could come to capturing, he's so vast, he's under ocean. But putting a ocean together in a four or five hours watchful time is what Attenborough did. And that's a movie I would love to keep watching.
0: Thank you. And our last question is, uh, I think our, our conversation has been full of that, but I think I, I would still like to ask this question. So it's helpful for for the future generations What message do you have that they can do better than what they're doing now? And any words of wisdom that you would like to give them?
1: I must confess, I really don't have words of wisdom, but I can only transmit the message of Vivekananda. Uh, in In a beautiful way, he says, life is short, give it up to a great cause. Most of us travel this journey without even discovering the true purpose of life, without even discovering what is a great cause. Some of us interpreted it in a very limited way as making my millions, making my thousands, making whatever, or setting up a factory, setting this, doing this. But I think just resonating or living with this message of life is short, give it up to a great cause. And I remember what I told my son, if you deconstruct this in a very simplistic way, Swamiji says, be and make. And he says, be good, do good. So I, and, and many, many years ago, as a young boy, my son asked me, you keep talking of Vivekananda. I don't understand. Tell me what I can understand. I told him, your life's purpose should just be, you should be happy. You figured out what happiness is. But then that, that journey of self-discovery that happens. And keep everybody around you happy. Because if you can't be selfish and say, if I understood happiness, it's not just for me. Keep everybody happy around me. So that's all I would say. And that's been my life's journey. And, and I'm having fun with it.
0: And I think that's a good way to end our uh, journey of this conversation together, to have fun in whatever you do, to see joy in whatever is around and to see the human in the other person and find happiness. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Valu, for being here, for being part of this podcast, being part of this interview. And uh, you say you don't have words of wisdom, but I think this conversation is full of wisdom and, and our listeners and beyond if they can take the essence out of all of it and imbibe just even a small percentage, uh, they'll find the richness and happiness in their lives through the words that you said, through the message of Swami Vivekananda and so many others that you mentioned. Thank you so much for being here and it's been a great, great honor to have spoken to you.
1: Thank you, such a pleasure. and I'm glad that you could participate.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in for another podcast of the Mindful Initiative. If you like what we do, if you like listening to our speakers, please share our podcast with your friends and family. Thank you so much.